Indie Media. Yes, yeah, sure. Look, like you mentioned, that it is a long and complex history, but I guess to, if you boil it down, um, for various historic reasons, East Timor never had maritime boundaries. Uh, and as a sovereign nation, it's entitled to have maritime boundaries and it wants to have maritime boundaries. And it's repeatedly said to Australia over the last 14 years, we want to have maritime boundaries. Uh, unfortunately, successive Australian governments have really been deaf to that request. Instead, Australia has jostled Timor into a series of, of temporary resource-sharing arrangements, which look at how to split oil and gas revenue sort of on a case-by-case basis or, or, or by setting up um, particular shared zones. But all of these treaties, even when they were signed, were very clearly signed uh, with this understanding that they were temporary arrangements that were put in place to keep profits flowing and keep the oil companies happy and, and to keep some money flowing into Timor, uh, while this bigger question of where do we put the maritime boundaries was answered. But unfortunately, the Australian government's really refused to play ball on that question and have, have taken a very hard uh, nose approach to those negotiations. And they really just sort of um, snubbed off those requests to, to sit down and look at where should permanent boundaries go. Uh, and so that's really the... the, the, the I guess this issue boils down to is that Timor hasn't got maritime boundaries. It wants some. And obviously where you place those boundaries will determine who owns potentially billions of dollars in in oil and gas revenue. And that's why it's such a heated dispute, I guess. Now, you're talking there about the absence of established permanent boundaries. And some listeners may be shocked to discover that Australia actually withdrew from the International Court of Justice uh, back in 2002, uh, arguably as a precursor to negotiating an unfavourable uh, arrangement for East, East Timor with these, these maritime uh, borders. So it circumvented the, the UN Convention on, on the Law of the Sea. I mean, talk us through that in terms of Australia's avoidance, really, of international arbitration of this dispute. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's just so telling, that, that issue. The, the fact that Australia withdrew its recognition of the maritime boundary jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, to me, is really um, makes this very clear that from the get-go, the Australian government wasn't really interested in doing the right thing. It wasn't interested in following international law. It was interested in getting the best deal it could get for itself. And, and that, that's really sad for a number of reasons. Um, at the time, Timor was the, the poorest country in Asia. It was a, you know, a fledging nation. Um, it, it just, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cruel thing to do. It's a selfish thing to do. Uh, but also more broadly, what's really interesting now is that we've got our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, you know, on the world stage, making speeches in Washington and, and, and so forth about various other international disputes. I think everyone's still thinking here about the South China Seas and, and China's role there. But Australia's out there on the world stage um, urging other countries to respect international law and to ratify the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Yet these are the very things that the Australian government ignores when it comes to East Timor. So it's, it's breathtakingly hypocritical uh, for Australia to be lecturing other countries on these very issues that it itself is ignoring. And I think that's it's a terrible situation. Um, and another example, I guess, of that hypocrisy, if you like, is the what the Timorese uh, are arguing for is to have a median line solution. So that is to 
to draw a line halfway between the two coastlines. And that would you know, mean that if an oil and gas field was closer to East Timor, then it would belong to East Timor. If it was closer to Australia, then it would belong to Australia. So it's fairly, you know, that, that's a common sense approach. It's a fair approach. But it's also what international law prescribes in exactly these circumstances. And interestingly, it's what Australia agreed to in 2006 when we negotiated some uh, maritime boundaries to resolve some overlapping claims with New Zealand. So off Macquarie Island, I think it was, or Norfolk Island, there was some overlapping claims. And in, in that case, Australia was quite happy to adopt a median line approach. Uh, and yet with East Timor, when there's billions of dollars at stake, uh, we're steadfastly ignoring that aspect of international law. So it's very disappointing. Now, as you've said, Mr. Clark, uh, East Timor is a small and obviously fledgling nation. So tell us a little bit about exactly how important uh, this potential oil and gas revenue would be to East Timor in terms of funding its infrastructure, uh, vital services and so forth. Look, it's, re- it's really key. And, and already the oil uh, revenue from the joint development area has, has been pivotal in, um, in Timor's development. Uh, uh, the reality, however, is that that those particular fields where there is a functioning treaty in place, which is without a maritime boundary, but with a, there is a resource sharing arrangement in place, the Timor Sea Treaty, uh, those money, that money has been you know, incredibly important to East Timor. But those fields, you know, the end of those fields' life is on the horizon. So that, that kind of revenue, that money is going to dry up. Um, so Timor really now are looking at the other fields that lie very close to their, um, their coastline, uh, but Currently, there's no real agreement of how to proceed. But for fields, for example, like the Greater Sunrise gas field is expected to generate about $40 billion in government revenue alone. Uh, and that's something that the Timorese believes lies um, what would be their exclusive economic zone if, that, if international, sorry, if maritime permanent boundaries were established in accordance with international law. But I think one thing, um, obviously, yeah, Timor would really benefit from this kind of revenue whereas Australia has vast territorial waters and, and, and other resources it can draw upon. But I think it's really important to, to make the note that for the Timorese, this isn't just a matter of, of money. Uh, for them, it's really wrapped up in this notion of independence and sovereignty. Now, for decades, they were involved in a long and hard struggle to achieve independence. And yet today, when Timorese look at a map, it, they're not, it's still not clear where their country starts and where it ends. So for them, it's very much seen as the kind of final chapter in what has been a very long journey uh, towards complete independence. And I think that's, uh, that, that uh, message and that kind of tone was coming through very strongly in the, uh, the protest last week in Dili outside Australia's embassy that was very much seen as... Um, uh, you know, so the, the, the group running that protest, for example, is called the Movement Against the Occupation of the Timor Sea. So for them, it's about, yes, let's get foreign powers out of Timor and let's have true independence, complete with uh, a permanent maritime boundaries. Mm. Last month, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull said that he is willing to open, quote, frank and open discussions with East Timor about the maritime boundary, but has ruled out uh, formally reopening uh, negotiations. Shadow Foreign Affairs spokeswoman Tanya Plibersek uh, announced this year that uh, she would 
open uh, negotiations for a new maritime boundary in good faith. Uh, were Labor to be elected in the federal election uh, later this year, uh, and if those bilateral talks failed, that she would be happy uh, to see the dispute go to international arbitration. Uh, I mean, I mentioned that by way of uh, asking the question as to what is the solution here? I mean, is there potentially going to be a solution through uh, some future bilateral talks between Australia and East Timor, or will it potentially be resolved uh, through some form of international arbitration? Uh, well, the first, um, the first step really in, in these situations is for bilateral talks. So the usual process is that the two countries uh, sit down and try to negotiate where to put the boundaries. Uh, and that's obviously preferable, and that's what we would be urging the Australian government to do, and that's what we have been urging them to do for 14 years. Um, so that, that, that makes sense, but obviously those negotiations are going to be a little bit smoother and a little bit um, you know, done in good faith. If from the outset, both parties say, look, if we can't reach consensus, then we are willing to let the independent umpire settle this dispute. So, you know, we really welcome Tanya Plibersek's uh, recent comments. Uh, it's, it's, it's great that you know, she's committing a future Labor government to set a permanent maritime boundary through negotiations. But importantly, it's really great that they're saying if we can't do that, then we're happy to have the matter uh, resolved by independent arbitration. Because I think really that's that's a really important thing. We've got a fairly, when you're talking about negotiations between a, country, a rich, powerful country like Australia and a small, developing country like East Timor, it's a very uneven negotiating um, field. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not an even negotiating table. So uh, having that backup of an independent umpire, being able to take them out as an independent umpire, is a really important uh, factor. So it really was pleasing to see... Um, now, last week it was an international international week of action in solidarity with East Timor. There were coordinated actions throughout the Southeast Asia region and protests uh, in Melbourne and Sydney, as well as in Jakarta, Manila, Kuala Lumpur. And as you mentioned, there was a very big protest in, in Dili, the capital of East Timor itself, uh, uh, up to 20,000 people protesting outside the Australian Embassy. I mean, that gives a, a flavour, doesn't it, of the level of anger around this. I mean, tell us a little bit about that as to... I suppose, yeah, how angry people are in East Timor about uh, about this issue. Yeah, I think there is a, a growing anger and, and resentment towards towards Australia in Timor and, and around the region. Like I think Australia has a very special relationship with East Timor, and lots of East Timorese, are, you know, I think will always be very grateful for the the role that um, many Australians played in throughout the sort of the solidarity uh, movement during occupation. Uh, of course, the, the, the role that the Australian Defence Force played in, in helping to liberate Timor. Um, and in more recent years, so many Australians have really you know, dedicated their time and money with various aid and humanitarian projects. So I think there's a, there's a tremendous amount of goodwill between the people of Australia and the people of East Timor. But I do think and, and worry that the actions of the Australian government is really poisoning that relationship. It's clear that, yes, we, we do a lot of great work in Timor. So with one hand, even our government gives you know, millions of dollars in humanitarian aid. Uh, but with the other hand, it's taking away billions of dollars in contested oil and gas revenue. So that's really sad. And I think it, yeah, it, is, it is building resentment in the air in the region and kind of entrenching this US-Australia. It's, a, it's a, bit of, a bit of a bully in the region. So it's not it's not in Australia's long-term nation, sorry, long-term interest uh, to be seen as a nation that um, 
is you know so comfortable with acting so clearly uh, in its own self-interest. Uh, we really want to be seen as a a nation that uh, you know, follows the rules, plays fairly, and um, you know, is looking for solutions that, that suit both countries, not simply what can Australia uh, get away with doing. And finally, Mr. Clark, if people want to find out more about this issue or get involved in the in the campaign, uh, what would you suggest? Uh, I mean, I know Timor Sea Justice Campaign. I don't think it has a presence in, in Perth, but uh, how can people, I guess, find out more about this issue? Uh, yes, it is, it's a fairly um, you know, decentralised campaign, and, and, and the actions that went off last week are a good example of that, where people, you know, a lot of grassroots um, groups forming in different cities and in different countries, um, and, and, and showing a lot of initiative there. So definitely, you know, it would be great to see a Perth chapter uh, spring up. Uh, but in terms of a, a good source of information, there's the website, so teamofcjustice.com. There's also a, a Facebook site. Uh, which again, I think it's Facebook forward slash uh, dot com forward slash Team Aussie Justice. There's a, a Twitter handle. These are kind of, I guess, the central um, points for getting information out there and, and updates and calls to action. But in terms of the protests and, and, and those kind of activities, yeah, we're really seeing a great response with people from Darwin, Brisbane, Sydney, Canberra sort of ringing up and saying, oh, what, what can we do? And um, increasingly, there are more groups uh, getting off the ground. But yes, yeah, it's the first port of call. Uh, going to the website and subscribing to the mailing list is a, is a good way to, to be kept up to date.